Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than anything you could ever imagine. So how do you imagine it? How do you imagine your life turning out? What do you want out of life? Do you even know? How's your life working for you now? We're in the middle of a series where we've been going through the book of Ephesians, which is actually a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus, and it's found in the New Testament of the Bible. But it's really a study about the way life was designed to be lived by God himself. And so I want to pick up where Gordon left off last week as he talked about moving out of an old life and into the new life, where we accept that grace for the first time, where we accept this new life in Jesus, and we take those first few steps. And as we transition into uh, Ephesians chapter 3, it occurs to me that now that you're in this transitional phase from leaving the old life and into the new, that Believing in Jesus kind of ruins it all, you know? While we could once live in ignorance about what was the right way to live, because as I believe that Gordon put it last week, that we were all once zombies. Really? Did he really say that? I leave for one week and we were like reduced in our teaching down to a zombie concept. And in the past, we could pretty much do anything we wanted to do without any sense of guilt or any issues about it, because what we did, because we were, again, as Gordon put it, the walking dead. So we were seemingly happy in our pursuit of nothing. We experienced the ignorant bliss of having an empty life. We lived in ignorance about the kind of life we could have in God because, quite frankly, we didn't know any better. Now, when you make a commitment to live in Jesus, and as he talked about last week, that you throw off the grave clothes and move forward and you leave them behind, you all of a sudden now become alive and enlightened. Now, all of a sudden, you know what's right and wrong. You know the way God wants you to live. So now, if you choose to go back to doing the things that you did before, you're not so ignorant anymore. And you can't really enjoy it because now you know it really is the wrong thing to do. And it's not any fun anymore because you can now see just how empty and meaningless that life really is. As the Apostle Peter put it, he says, If we have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing Jesus, and then we again become entangled in it, we are worse off in the end than we were in the beginning. 
I think that the Bible acknowledges this tension that exists in us where we try to live in both worlds. I think that we desperately, I mean, just by the fact that we're here on a Sunday morning, we desperately want to have a meaningful faith in Jesus Christ. And yet, deep down, truth be known, we really don't want to give up the stuff of this world that we really, really love, do we? So when it comes down to it, we're not experiencing the kind of satisfying life that we desire in God. We're not feeling the presence of God. We're not experiencing the abundant life that Jesus so boldly promised for all of those who would follow him. It's not so immeasurably more than we could ever imagine because we could definitely imagine so much more than what we have right now. And I think about what happens is that we try this Jesus thing out for a while, right? We take those first few steps because we feel like we need it. We think it's a quick fix for all the things that's wrong in my life. But after a while, the shine kind of wears off, and it begins to feel like work. And I don't need any more work in my life. And eventually, we stop working at it. And we start expecting that now, just somehow, miraculously, somehow, we should start continue to feel the presence of God. Or that somehow God should just zap us and that we should now experience his peace and this abundant life without doing anything. Because all the while, we have become completely disengaged from our spiritual life, and yet somehow we still are able to blame everyone and everything else for the reason why I'm not having and experiencing and living the kind of life that I want, the kind of abundant life that I read about. When all the while, the blame points directly back at me. So what does it take to have the kind of satisfying, fulfilling life that is immeasurably more, where we can move past our feelings of emptiness, move past a a meaningless life and start living this kind of fulfilling life that I've been promised. I, I think this is exactly what the Apostle Paul is getting at, in which he is actually praying for the people of Ephesus in chapter 3. And in verse 16, he says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I want to focus a lot on that phrase, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Paul prays, that our inner beings would be strengthened with the power of the Spirit. Why? So that our new zombie-free life can become a dwelling place for God. Now, this is one of those churchy images that I have a difficult time understanding, that Jesus would take up 
residence in my life. Or as an old hymn that I grew up with suggests, you ask me how I know he lives. Anybody? He lives within my heart, right? No church people here. So as a kid, and you, so you kind of wonder, what does this kind of mean, that Jesus is taking up residence in my heart or in my life? And, and as a kid, I had this image of a, of a mini-me Jesus, basically, <laughs> who had like a little bat cave in my heart. And he would just wait around until I needed him or until something happened, and then he would jump out like Batman. And whenever I called him or whatever I needed him, he was always there. But when you look at the Greek text that this letter was originally written in, the word here for dwell, that Christ would dwell in our hearts, has the idea of Jesus taking up permanent residence. In the context of this passage, the idea is not that he is just simply hanging out temporarily like some sort of a house guest. Instead, it's an image of him being at home there, settled in, Like a family member. So I think the idea here is that you better be careful before you invite Jesus into your heart and make dang sure that this is what you want because like when you invite family over who have no intention of ever leaving, neither does Jesus. And Paul's teaching here is focused not around the fact of whether or not Jesus should be dwelling in your heart, because he says it's a foregone conclusion that he should be, but it's focused around the permanence and the quality of his presence while he's in there. It suggests that Jesus cannot be fully at home in our hearts unless he's in control of our hearts. Let's look at it from another dimension. Jesus takes the same idea from a different perspective. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, Jesus says this, When an impure spirit or demon comes out of a person, it goes through the desert, hot, arid places, seeking rest, but it never finds it. And then it says, Ah, I know what I'll do. I will return to the house that I left. When it arrives, it finds that the house is unoccupied, but it's swept clean and put in order. And then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and they live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than it was in the first place. So Jesus uses this metaphor of our lives as being a house that had been occupied by this demon as a way to describe our own lives when we let the wrong stuff get in control of our lives. But there comes a time when we decide that we're going to get rid of all that stuff. We're going to get rid of the sin in our lives. We're going to live differently. And so according to the metaphor, we kick out this evil demon out of our lives and we clean house. Our house, which is a metaphor for our lives, is nice, and tidy, and looks real good because we've kicked out all of the bad stuff, which is all great, except for one thing. We never moved anyone else back in, and that house remains vacant. And we know what happens to vacant houses. So when the demon that got kicked out comes back, 
and fine, the lights are on, but no one's home. And what's more, it's now clean and smells better than ever. The demon goes out and invites all of his little demon buddies to move back into the house with him. And now there's twice as many demons as there was before. And Jesus says, now this man is really screwed. But why? If the metaphor represents us cleaning up our lives so that we can live for Jesus, and then how could it actually get worse instead of better? How? Because we never, ever really made a full commitment to Jesus Christ where we were willing to turn over the entirety of our lives to him. When we decide to pursue our faith in God, we do that. We clean out all the bad habits in our lives. It's way past due, right? We're so ready. We stop the sinful things that we were doing because we're ready for a fresh start. But the problem is that it leaves our lives vulnerable and empty because we never fill our life with anything else that has meaning and value. We never fill our lives back up with God. And so what happens is that we have no sense of purpose or direction. We start all of a sudden reminiscing about the old life. How good it was back in the day. How fun it was. We start missing our old habits again. Sin creeps back in. And all that stuff that we work so hard to get rid of comes back, only this time, twice as bad. Have you taken those first steps towards Jesus Christ? Have you made that first move in cleaning out all the bad stuff? Is your life sitting vacant and ready to be filled with all of that stuff from your past again? You see, you can't carve out a fulfilling life for yourself by not doing things or getting rid of others. It's not enough to just stop doing. It's more a matter of what you start doing that makes all the difference. It's about what you will now fill your life with that will determine how meaningful your life will become, and therefore how protected you are against falling back into your old way of life. And I think that this is what Paul is talking about in verse 17 as he goes on. He says, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high And deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that actually surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That word that Paul uses there, fulfilled, has the idea that we are filled to the point of being crammed to the rim with no capacity left. There is not even an ounce of availability for anything else to enter your life, you are so 
filled with God. A person who is full of rage is totally dominated by anger. A person who's full of joy is totally dominated by happiness. And a person who is full of God is totally dominated by God. Everybody is filled with something, and the question becomes, what are you filled with? What are you allowing to creep back into your life? What is slowly filling up all of the vacant capacity that you have in your life? What Paul is suggesting is that we become so filled up with the fullness of God that we become fulfilled to the brim with the love of God in our hearts. One of the biggest challenges I think that we face in the Christian life is consistent spiritual growth. In other words, how do we keep it full? Because when we first become a Christian, like I said, it feels great. There is this new life that we're taking on, and everything feels so fresh and clean and new, but it doesn't take long for it to go downhill from there. So how do we capture this consistent walk with God where our everyday faith is a living, breathing, growing faith that is alive and vibrant and not zombie-like? I can't even believe I'm continuing to perpetuate that for Gordon. (laughs) I won't even say that. (laughs) This is an area that I struggle with as a pastor because I've seen the mistake that the traditional church makes when it makes the Christian faith all about a things-to-do list. Where if you keep to the do's and don'ts, if you recite a particular prayer at a particular time, if you follow the rituals of the church, then you're deemed to be a person of strong faith. The problem with that is that Christianity becomes nothing more than the religious do's and don'ts, and there is no focus on having a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And there is therefore no life change that takes place, and so it's not a meaningful experience for you. And it leaves you empty. I've also been negatively affected by the more conservative churches who promote the idea that if you have a strong knowledge of the Bible, if you can recite Scripture and use Scripture to argue that one theology is superior to another, then you are deemed to be a strong person of faith because of your knowledge. But the problem with that is that they approach the Bible academically and not experientially, and there can be somebody that has a great knowledge of the Scripture and still not have any kind of a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. And in fact, I think that's why Paul, in verse 19, uses this play on words where he says, I want you to know this love. But if you go back to the Greek on that, he's talking about experience this love firsthand that surpasses knowledge, that it's not an intellectual ascent. It's what you know personally that you've experienced. 
that you embrace, that you embody. It's exactly what Jesus fought against with the religious leaders of his day, where they used the knowledge of the scriptures to create a spiritually arrogant group of people who looked down on those who didn't have the same grasp of the scriptures that they did. But Jesus said of them, you look good on the outside. You follow the rules of morality. You make people think that you're very spiritual and they think very highly of you because of the way that you quote the scriptures. But Jesus said, but on the inside, you ugly. And you are nothing more than a bunch of hypocrites. Well, I believe, I believe what the Bible really teaches about spiritual growth is that it's more about having an authentic relationship with God than it is about ritual or do's or don'ts or becoming a biblical scholar. Because I believe that the fight for the Christian faith is not fought on the outside of our lives by the things that we do and the things that we say and that we make the things that we make people believe about us so that they will think well of us. It's a struggle on the inside. It's what's on the inside in the heart that makes a difference about who we really are. And it's about Jesus taking up permanent residence, dwelling in our hearts, being filled with him, so filled with him, that there is no capacity for anything else to the point that the love of God overflows from every single aspect of our lives. And you can't fake that. The problem is that our lives are so compartmentalized that we have a section of our life for everything. We have a room over here that is our career, our job, what we do every day. We have a room over here that is, of course, for our family, that we keep those two separate. And then way over here in the corner, we keep this room over here for church because we don't want anybody to get mixed up about these rooms. And then all of a sudden we invite Jesus into our lives and he's expecting a full access pass into the entire house. And so he trots into the kitchen and you say, oh, wait a minute, Jesus. (laughs) I have some things going on in there that I really don't want you to be a part of. Find someplace else. And so Jesus begins to make his way up to the bedroom and you go, oh, wait a minute. (laughs) There's some things up there I don't want you to see. Uh, You know, find someplace else. And Jesus starts on his way down into the basement. And you go, oh my gosh, Jesus. You know what? There's just some things down there that I've been meaning to throw away for years that I just haven't done. You know what? By the way, while I'm thinking of it, would you mind just waiting in the hall? (laughs) Uh, I just like to be able to keep doing some of the things that I'm, uh, I'm doing and I'll call you if I need you. And you can't really enjoy all of the things in the past, all those little secret compartments that you've kept hidden and because you can't really open them up. And please keep your voices down because Jesus is just right out there in the hallway and I really don't want him to know what's been going on in there. And you can't really enjoy the fullness of a life in God because Jesus is out in the hall. He's just a very small part of your life. He's just become another compartment. He hasn't been allowed full access. And so you remain trapped between two worlds. And you know what? You can't enjoy either one of them. And you continue to lead an empty, meaningless life. 
But Paul says, let the stuff that has no meaning go. The stuff of this world that has no meaning, just get rid of it. But that's just the first step. Now, fill your life completely with the fullness of God. It's a little bit like when you go to the beach and you want to get into the ocean, but you just kind of stick your toe in there and you go, dang, that's cold. You kind of get in a little bit more and you get wet. Now you're wet and cold and standing there and you can't really enjoy that. You can't really enjoy anything, right? And it's not until you dive in headlong where your body begins to adjust and all of a sudden you go, ah, this is incredible. To dive into a life in God. To allow His fullness to fill you. So now, when you read the Bible and you pray and you go to church, it's not some little compartment. It's not like a checklist of all the boxes of the do's and don'ts. You do that because you want to do that, because you want to get closer to God, because you want to get more full of His fullness. Now you have a relationship with God where Jesus has taken up permanent residence and now that he's taken over the entire home and it's not until he takes over everything that he can now do immeasurably more than you could ever imagine. It's not until he's in full control that beyond your wildest dreams he can take your life into a new dimension. As long as you keep him in the hall, no change will happen. I spoke with my brother the other day who uh, he told me that he just uh, spent time with my dad and it was a very difficult conversation but he told my dad that he was celebrating his 10th year of sobriety. My brother is somebody who in the beginning of his life started with everything against him. He was abandoned as a child and my parents took him in. And he came to my parents with fetal alcohol syndrome. And so by the time he was 14, he was a raging alcoholic. By the time he was 16, he did his first stint in the state penitentiary and then did two other sentences in the state penitentiary. I think while a lot of parents might have given up on their kids like after the second time in the pen. It seemed like somehow my parents just dug in. And somehow they, find the, they found the strength to increase their love and, and faith in him where they just never gave up on him. Ever. Ever. But the thought that he could ever clean up his life and become a different person... I don't think any of us, truthfully, could have ever imagined that. So when my brother, who's now 49, goes to my father to tell him he's now that he's now 10 years sober and his life has completely changed, he said, my dad started crying. And he said this. I knew the son 
that I believed in all these years was in there somewhere. I just didn't know how to find him. But God did. He said, I've been waiting all my life to meet my real son. I couldn't be more proud. When God looks at you, he says, I know the person I created you to be is in there somewhere. The person that I designed for you to become person who has this incredible, abundant, fulfilling life is in there somewhere. You can just shake off the past and just let me take you to a place you never dreamed possible. We come to church every Sunday morning and we remain unchanged. We give money, we serve, and yet We have an empty life. We pray, and yet we're not filled with God. Aren't we just so tired of living an empty life? I want to live differently. I want to live the life that I've always dreamed of. Heck, I want to live the life that I can't even dream up. I'm just ready for my real life. The life that God designed for me from the beginning of time.